Please turn with me to the book of Joel. It's one of those that's kind of hard to find. It's, uh, yeah, on mine, it's, I don't know, it's 14, 17 in my Bible. But my Bible has very large print, so you may not even have 1,400 pages in yours. Uh, after Hosea, which is after Daniel, those are pretty fat books, so Joel's not a, not a big book, only three chapters, but there's a lot here. And so we will begin our study of Joel today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it, not only today, but as we continue our study through this whole book. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we are thankful that even as we open this uh, minor prophet, which is only minor uh, in name, uh, it's not minor in message, because it's about you. Um, Even this little book that's hard to find in the Old Testament tucked away is about you and your coming and redemption and the restoration of all things. And so, Lord, we pray that we would glean that from it, that we would not find anything else but you here, that we would find hope even as some of these verses seem hopeless. We would find hope. We would find you. We would find refuge in the truth. Lord, we pray that you lead us to it this morning as we open your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, um, as I was studying this book, I've actually been reading it through several times over the last couple of months in preparation for it. It's not a book that has been very familiar to me. Um, And so, I've been studying it. And um, over the last couple of months, we've also had several disasters hit our country Namely, a couple of major hurricanes. You know, the news really drummed them up as some of the greatest hurricanes ever hit our shores, which may, may or may not be true. I don't, I don't know. But they were big and lots of property loss, lots of life loss. And so um, we're reading here about a disaster that fell upon the nation of Israel. And so think about, I'm thinking about that in context of what, like Hurricane Harvey and Irma. And I was listening to this program about the hurricanes on American Family Radio, and it talked about how God did not cause Hurricane Harvey. It's because of Adam's sin, and we're all suffering the results of that. God didn't actually cause the hurricane. We did somehow. Um, And there was some truth to what the man was saying. Yes, things like hurricanes are a result of sin on earth, and we indeed did sin, or Adam sinned, and through him we have sinned. However, there is something extremely wrong about what he said. He said that God had nothing to do with those disasters and disasters like them. God was just a spectator to them. He didn't use those terms, but he may as well have. He's a spectator like we were, and worse, the implication there that God being a spectator that didn't cause the disaster, then did nothing to stop it. What's wrong with that? Scripture teaches that teaches us that God does indeed cause natural disasters, like the one that we're going to read about in Joel with the locust plague and many others that go on throughout scriptures. It also teaches that the reason God doesn't stop them is because they have a purpose, his purpose, meaning that he caused it, and when he caused it, it had a distinct purpose all its own. God doesn't do random or accident. All things that come to pass do so because of him and do so on purpose and with a purpose. 
if things accidentally happened and God didn't help us, then maybe we, then maybe he would be unloving, like the unbeliever tells us, right? At least according to our own standard. However, if he causes these things to happen and then allows them to continue, he's all-powerful, all-knowing. He knows the ends as well as the means. We beg for mercy. So in our text today, there's an accounting of a natural disaster in the form of this locust swarm. Um, And here's the hard thing about this swarm. One of the hard things that we're going to see about this swarm as we read through the rest of the book. The the Lord calls it his army, this, uh, this swarm of locusts. For whatever reason, the Lord sent locusts among the people of Israel. The locusts decimated their crops and so then their livelihoods as well. Reading through this book several times, of course, over the past few months, I knew that it was going to be a great book for us to read in the holiday season. I know that sounds completely contrary to what we normally think about Christmas. However, it does highlight for us the despair that we have without Christ. And it also highlights the height of redemption that we have in Christ. And we see both of those extremes in this book. I think it's very instructive for us as God's redemptive people to see that when God sends judgment, he often sends it to his own people first. And we're going to get that in this book as we explore that theme and others. Again, most of all, it's important for us to keep this in context and at the front We're highlighting most of all the work of Jesus Christ, who is the worker of our faith and the bringer of redemption. We'll see that in two ideas from our text today. Uh, Let the people know that the Lord is God and let the people know about their sin. Our text is the first chapter of Joel, verses 1 through 12. Let's stand together as we read from God's word. Joel chapter 1. Verses 1 through 12. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail. O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. 
All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. It's an interesting little book, is it not? There's a lot packed in these few pages. Words of judgment, as I think we noticed from this morning, but there's also words of redemption. The New Testament writers often quote Joel. Um, it even finds some quoting, I think, in the evangelical world today. You know, at least one verse does that, that God will take away the years the locusts have eaten. We've all seen that one. Um, what, is, what it isn't full of is information about the prophet Joel himself and the time in which he worked. There's, all, there's quite a debate, actually, in the dating of this book. And a lot of times when you read a book in the Old Testament, it's important to know when the date is because it helps you to understand the historical and political climate of the time and it gives you context. Um, after reading through a lot of the debate, and uh, I tend to side with the pre-exile Israel crowd, um, sometimes this matters again, but... Today, and for this book, it's not a very important understanding uh, whether or not you fall in the pre- or post-exile crowd really isn't that important, I guess, unless you uh, are in that kind of scholarly realm. For us, it's not important. John Calvin said of this, and so, of course, it's truth since John Calvin said it. And there is no certainty, or as there is no certainty, it is better to leave the time in which he taught undecided. As we shall see, it is of no great importance. And I think that's important for us as well. Um, and I'll, I'll go with that. The prophet himself is a mystery. The, the man Joel, though his name does mean the Lord is God. The first part of his name is the, from the proper name of God, Yahweh. And the L is a more generic term for God. In many ways, I think the name Joel uh, serves as a way to talk about this book. As it highlights that God is in control and we're not. It also highlights that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts not our thoughts. From these first 12 verses, I think we see that. As we deal with this tough first chapter and tough really uh, first half to the second chapter, I think it's good to remember that context. Because it may be easy to pass things off like locust swarms and say, well, God didn't do that. It somehow happened and God was left to spectate like we were but we see quite the opposite here so we should learn the truth about when and why God might do something like this and why he did do things like this as we read through the scriptures also just a quick word about verse 1 the word of the Lord that came to Joel this sets Joel apart this sets this book apart not apart from other books of the Bible but as a book that is God's word. It sets Joel apart from us and from anyone else in modern times that would say, I have a word from the Lord. No, you do not. As a prophet, he was giving revelation from directly from God. He was actually speaking the words of the Lord. Because he gives revelation from God, we are subject to it even a book like this little old Joel that's kind of stuck here in the middle of the Old Testament prophets. We might rather be subject to John or to Romans, 
But here we are in the Old Testament, in the middle of the Minor Prophets, and they have bearing on our lives, and they deserve our study, just like those other books do. Joel, as he's reading here, as he's citing or, or talking, is acting as the very mouthpiece of God in this book, giving us his words as if God is speaking to us directly. I think that's important to understand as we read the this prophet. If you haven't, if you're not familiar with the Minor Prophets, this is how, or the, all the prophets, this is how they speak. So when we read things like my people and my land, it's as if God is speaking to us. That's important. The phrase, thus saith the Lord, appears over 400 times in Scripture. It's because those are the words that God spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament, gave them to say, and they weren't always happy, fun words. A lot of times they weren't. These were spoke hundreds of years ago, and even though they were spoke so many years ago, they still direct and instruct our lives today, and that is important as we open this book. And so that brings us to our first point, let the people know that the Lord is God. After he announces himself, he immediately goes into these words of prophet, a prophecy. A lot of times you see this starting with something like, hear this, or hear these words, or thus saith the Lord. Verses 2 and 3, Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What is he saying? Listen up. Record this. Write this down. If you're living in the 8th century B.C., how do you record stuff? Well, you tell other people, you tell your children, you tell their children, you pass it down, lest it be lost. He gives this first to the elders, not talking about a specific office here, but talking just about the older folks among the people. Then to everyone, meaning like this, nothing like this has even happened in so long that the older people can't even remember their grandparents talking about it. That's been a long time for Israel. It's been a while. And it's a devastating thing that's happening to the nation. Look at verse 4. This gives us a good picture of this. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Four different kinds of locusts mentioned here. And these are only four of the nine Hebrew words for locust. You think these folks were bothered by locusts. This was obviously an important concept for them. They live in an agricultural type society. Locusts were the stuff of nightmares for them. And so having nine words to describe them is probably sufficient. And again, not because locusts were dangerous to their immediate physical being. A locust is basically looks like a grasshopper as far as we're concerned. But they could destroy a farm for years. Not because they kept coming back every year, but one destruction could wipe that farm out for years, removing any and all traces of vegetation. So you kind of get the picture here of what's going on. 
Each one is coming in successive waves, taking out what the others had left. To what you just have dirt, basically, and rocks. Not a whole lot left. Probably four different species of locusts mentioned here, coming in four different waves. There are lots of historical accounts that you can read about this this thing literally happening two days, and then the next two days, and then the next two days, leaving the people just, what do you do? Walk outside and you can't even, it's like mosquitoes in southeast Missouri. You can't even walk and they're just like all around you. But imagine them being big grasshoppers that eat anything in sight. It's pretty horrible. The entire economy would have been wrecked. Their personal livelihood had to do with growing things and the growing seasons. All of a sudden, nothing is growing. That's a problem. Everyone starves. All the livestock starve. There's no money because there's no trade. No supplies are coming in from the outside. Nothing. And so this kind of sets us up for what's going on in this book. This series of commands that he gives us. Which are commands, but kind of are are odd commands. Look at verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail. All you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. The command to the drunkards is to awake, which is kind of fitting for them. Because what we think of a drunkard is not being really with us. Though they may be awake, they're not. But now all of a sudden they're stirred to be awake because, well, they're not going to be drinking for a while. It's cause for them to to wail, to weep. It's probably a blessing in disguise. Uh, if you've ever been woken up from some horrible or from a sleep to, into a horrible kind of thing, you kind of understand what's going on here. For the drunk, again, they would have been asleep to the world because of alcohol. And now that the alcohol is gone, they, the world is this horrible place where there's nothing left. And so they're to wake up into that. Look at verse eight. Lament. Like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. What's the imagery here? Well, this bride who is waiting for her bridegroom to come dressed in wedding clothes is now going to have to change into a funeral outfit. The promise of a wedding now met with a funeral. Think of this in the terms of what the nation was dealing with. The promise of a harvest now being blotted out. With all of these locusts. Look at verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. Be ashamed, is what it says to the tillers, to the farmers. There may be a note here in your Bible that sounds that says something to the effect of be ashamed. Sounds like dried up in the original language. Remember, we're reading poetry here. It doesn't really seem like poetry to us because, well, it was written in another language. Um, and Hebrew poetry is not what we think of as English poetry with having rhyming and um, meter and all these things, but they use imagery a lot. And so this, these two words sounding alike would have been a, a poetic kind of device to bring the Hebrew reader in. To bring them in emotionally. For us, 
Again, we might wonder why a farmer should be ashamed of losing his crop. Well, the, it says, verse 11, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. You literally get the picture here of someone being so upset and so sad that they're literally shouting in their, in their sadness. The word wail is the word hallelujah. We're familiar with that word, right? With, but we normally say hallelujah, which is praise the Lord. Well, hallelujah is just shout. Shout because you are sad. So you kind of get this picture of the farmers just shouting their lament. Complete loss of inhibition. Any kind of social regard. Shouting their lament because everything is gone. Verses 6 and 7 give us a description of what it must have been like. For a nation has come up against my land. The Lord describes the locusts as a nation. Powerful beyond number. Its teeth like lions. Its fangs like a lioness. They lay waste to the vine, splinter the fig tree. It goes on. This is horrible. Destroying everything that has life except for the human life that is left behind to pick up the pieces. And the one place that they may go for peace, the temple, has also been cut off. Verse 9, the grain offering, the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. Why is it cut off? There's nothing to offer. There's nothing there. And so this is a horrible thing. The drink offering, the, uh, the grain offering, these represented the daily worship of the people. Now they're gone. So is their worship. The question for us, why would God do something to the people that would possibly cut off their worship? This is hard for us. Hopefully this is hard. That's the idea here. The writer's not trying to make us feel good. This is difficult. What about this seems just? Weren't these the people of God? Didn't God go into Egypt and pull them out and protect them from the Philistines and from others and raise up men like David to protect them and to lord over them? Hadn't the Lord seen Israel be extremely prosperous in its history? What kind of God does this? If he's powerful enough to send send locusts, and he does, is he good? Have you ever heard questions like these before? It's common, it's common questions of unbelievers that they give because it's, we can't blame them, right? You come to this and you're like, what is this? Because they, they look around and they see things like this or they see things like Hurricane Harvey and Irma and they think, why God? What's their ultimate thought though? We don't deserve this. And that brings us to the next point. Let the people know their sin. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. Look at verses 15 through 19 with me. 28 is a very thick chapter. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 19. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, 
Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be when you come in, and cursed shall be when you go out. Skip ahead to 36, verse 36 of that same chapter. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you, whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little. For the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. What should we do with this passage? For the people of Israel warned. You mean there are consequences for sin? Israel's learning that, aren't they, throughout the Old Testament? Is God just? Is he fair? Yes. We're the ones that have messed up versions of justice. How far does this go back? Well, do we want to know how far this goes back? Look with me at verse 12 of Joel chapter 1. And see if you can make this connection here. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. It's a little broader in scope than what we've been dealing with, right? All the trees of the field are dried up. The gladness dries up from the children of man. Not just them in that time or us today, but the gladness of the children of man. All of us. What connection can we make here? All this list of these wonderful fruit trees and all the trees of the field. What were Adam and Eve told they could eat of? All the trees in the garden are yours, except this one. Every tree. But why are they now dried up? Is it because God is a bad God? Is it because he's unable? It's because of the sin of man. Because creation is cursed. No longer does it yield its fruit easily. Things like hurricanes and locust plagues are normal. The sin of man is also normal. And God comes and judges. So what's the theme here for us? We're sinners. The world is cursed because of us. And God is right to exact whatever judgment he feels is right. And if you look at the scriptures, you'll see over and over again that... Judgment comes to his people first.
first and foremost. Why? Because we should know better. Let's translate this to to what we're dealing with today in our own churches. We don't have a locust plague. We have things like insecticides, right? We could just uh, spray and deal with them. Translate this to American Church 2017. Wonder why the Bible is drying up in churches all over? Not even being read? It's not even being referenced even? Wonder why people are who are living in open sin are filling pulpits? Wonder why people want a concert when they go to church? Wonder why the unbeliever laughs at the believer and compares our God to a fairy tale? It's God's judgment. We have forsaken the truth of the scriptures. We disobey every commandment with smiles on our faces. We have made the house of God a laser light show, appealing to the physical man rather than the heart as if he were some beast rather than the very image of God. You can't look outside and find locusts this morning, but you can visit a lot of churches and not hear any scripture Because we are under the judgment of God. Then what should we do? Honestly, there isn't a lot of hope in the words that we read this morning. Let's just be honest. The entire book, if you read Joel as a whole, offers hope overflowing. But these words are hard. And so what are we to do? Well, I think he gives us some hints. Look at verse 2. Or verse 3, tell your children of it. Let, their, let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. We have to tell our children and their children and so on so that they may always know that there is a God in heaven and we have to worship him. And not just the side of the story that we like about God, but we have to tell the whole story lest they forget and believe that God is some sort of cosmic Easter Bunny, Santa Claus hybrid thing. And that he just stands and smiles and nods and lets us go on our way. Every once in a while brings us presents. It's not the God that we worship. If we ever teach them that locust swarms and hurricanes somehow arise on their own without the guidance of a creator, then we should not be surprised when they act like heathens. If they believe that the world that they live in is completely out of control, then let's not be surprised when they are out of control. Don't for a minute think that your theology doesn't affect your behavior. It does, 100%. And look with me at verse 13, and we'll spoil a little bit for next week, but I mean, you, you have one of these at home, you can read it. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, well, O ministers of the altar, Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Put on sackcloth and lament. What's the answer here? Repentance. This is something that I plan to really highlight next week, the idea of repentance. We lay down. We beg forgiveness. We beg as those undeserving. And those who should be struck down, that he would have mercy on his church, that he would have mercy on us, his people. We beg forgiveness. And understand this, brothers and sisters, we beg forgiveness 100% 
expecting that we will receive it. Why? Jesus. Jesus is making all things new. That's really the theme of this book. I hate to leave you with verse 12 and leave you with dried up fields and torn up hopes. But we can't really digest this whole book in one Sunday. It'd be nice if we could, but we can't. Jesus is removing the guilt and the shame of judgment. And instead, what does he give us? His robe of righteousness. At this point, Israel would have loved to have just had one fruit. Just one fruit tree, right? And I'll spoil the end. Guess what he does? He brings them all back. He restores everything. Not only does he bring back their physical needs, like plants, things to get them by from day to day, but there's going to be a day in the history of Israel, brothers and sisters, if you keep turning the pages, where he's going to come himself. The very Son of God comes to the people of Israel. The one that he'd sent plagues to generations past. The one that he'd sent nations to destroy generations past. God is going to come to them himself to save them. Were he simply restoring trees and vineyards, he could just snap a finger and it would be done, right? Yet he came personally because their sins, because our sins deserve punishment. He came to take all, all of that punishment once and for all. The desolation that is left by the locusts, if you can just imagine what's going on here. I looked at some YouTube videos and watched the way that they eat. It's just incredible. What they can do to, to land is just amazing. This desolation that they left was just a small shadow compared to the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. How could he stand it? How was he able to do it? Joel could answer that question by speaking his own name. The Lord is God. The Lord Jesus is God, is very God of very God. And God came to rescue his people, not from locusts or hurricanes, but from sin and death, two far greater enemies. And he defeated them, and he now waits for us in a place where sin and death are not allowed. And so what do we do in conclusion? First and foremost, let us be slow to announce God's judgment on things. We have no idea how and why he acts today, honestly. But we can have an idea. When I look in the church around me, what do I see? I see the judgment of God on his people. We can know, or we do know, that Israel tossed their God to the side, and he tossed them to the nations, of which these locusts were one. And there are many in the future, and there are many even in our own lives, not real nations, but you know what I mean. If we were going to announce judgment, again, let us first see our own sin and see that it deserves it because we know better. Then we're going to be more equipped to go and deal with the world and preach the gospel to the world. How do we deal with the sin of the world? Again, we don't deal with it by standing on our high horse as if we somehow deserve the redemption that we have. If we ever think that, let's read the first chapter of Joel again. 
How do we deal with the sin of the world? We do that by preaching Jesus Christ, the only cure for the sin of the world. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the only way the unbelieving world will ever have life and hope. And so, Lynn, let us speak his name regularly. And with that, not only to the world, but also to each other, we need reminding of this also. Because sometimes the world is hard. And so let us not stop reminding one another of these truths as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, it's easier to study books that paint a rosy picture. But this book is going to help us to understand redemption that much more. To understand restoration and hope that much more. You bring redemption and hope to the driest hearts of which we were without you. A the healing a nation from a locust swarm is a small task compared to healing our hearts that were in sin and death. And so Lord We pray that you would help us as we go through this book to understand more and more, not only for our own hearts and for our own benefit, but also, Lord, that we might tell others about the abounding hope that they have in you, our Lord. So it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen.